Richard Russell is a musician and a music producer. I like working with people who would have been great without me. You know when you hear some people talk about discovering someone and you think, mm, no, they, they just straightforwardly existed and were doing what they were doing. You know that that person's mum thought they were brilliant long before you did. His main job for a long time was signing musicians. One of them, a once unknown singer named Adele. So I'd heard some demos on MySpace and she had a very distinctive voice. And I went to see her perform and she came across as completely 100% herself and utterly convincing in what she was doing. Other artists seek out Richard to steer their work. People like Damon Albarn, the frontman of Blur and the co-founder of Gorillaz. Richard produced Damon's first solo album. He referred to my part in that process as like being a midwife. Which Richard takes as a compliment. He had a huge amount of demos. And then it was establishing a kind of sonic template in terms of like what kind of sounds we were going to use and establishing a mood for the whole thing. Richard is what you might call an artist whisperer. He believes that the best way to work with a musician is just to listen to them. It's a strategy that served him well as the co-founder of XL Recordings. When Richard first started out, the label's focus was rave music. Prodigy was XL's breakout star. After Richard took the helm in 1994, he expanded the label's focus. I'm very, very interested in sonic adventurousness. I'm very interested in sounds that I haven't heard before and production that I haven't heard before. He also had an idea about the way XL should operate in order to become a draw for artists. He wanted XL to have the drive, the ambition, and the competitiveness of the major labels, with the core support for artists of the indies. And it worked. XL went on to produce The White Stripes, Gil Scott Heron, Dizzy Rascal, M.I.A., Vampire Weekend, and their biggest star, Adele. I'm Damian Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence. Who has it? Who wants it? And how to use it for good. Richard Russell was an obsessive music fan as a kid. As he got older, he got into DJing and started making his own rave and hip-hop music, which he took to XL to try to get signed. That part didn't work out, but Richard stuck around the company long enough to become its head, remaking XL into one of the most respected and successful independent labels in the world. Today, Richard's focus is creative. He's still the owner of XL, but isn't hands-on with the business. He produces one artist at a time and makes his own music under the name Everything Is Recorded. We reached him in his studio in Labrook Grove. Yes. And is that the same building that you've always been in? No. You know, I've only had this studio since 2013. Okay. I loved recording at home, apart from the distractions of family life. So what, have you got kids? Yeah. I've got three kids who are 19, 17, and 13, nearly 14. And in, into music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone's really into music. It's very, very noisy. It's, um, into your music? Some. That there's areas that they enjoy and areas that they're not interested in, of the things that I'm interested in. All right. 
I mean, anyone else's taste in music is interesting because as a fan, you can't be wrong. Right. I mean, if you love it, that's that. And so anyone says they love something, I want to hear it. And, you know, you can only really go wrong when, when you get into like industrialization and commodification. Like, I don't know, a radio station will be playing an artist because they think it's going to be popular or a label will be backing someone because they think it's going to be popular. Maybe they don't love it. Well, then you could be wrong. But I think anything you're doing with that visceral, you know, that heartfelt connection to anything, then you're right. So what for you is good music? It's a very, that's a very big question. What for me is good music? It's a bit like asking me what's a good person, right? I mean, these things are multifaceted, aren't they? Yeah. You know, there's there's music which has a transcendent quality. There's a small amount of people who make music with with a specialness to it, which is like to me is like a sort of thread that runs through music, a kind of permanent frequency of music which is so heartfelt and beautiful and touching in, in whatever way it is that might be you know expressed through something very aggressive and noisy or it might be expressed through something very delicate and vulnerable for me there's always a, a spark of originality there because the person or people making it they're exposing themselves so you're hearing the person and you're hearing something from within their core that they've managed to find a way of capturing. And you know when you're in the presence of that because you connect to that directly. The listener connects to that directly. Soul music, right? And soul music can sound like anything. And it's often connected to pain. I think it's often connected to people. But then obviously that is not unconnected to joy as well. That's a that's a long a long winded description of what I think good music is. But I do think it's interesting you responded with is like ask me what a good person is because what you seem to describe there is integrity, depth, honesty. I imagine you're a reasonably good judge of character. That you would look for those sort of qualities in a person too before you even get into music. Well, I think all people are a mixture, though. <laughs> you know, people like to see themselves as as good people, but all people or a mixed bag and it's good for people to see themselves as that and then to see other people as that because they are and so the person who seems noble and saintly will have a bad side to them and similarly with the, you know someone who's seen widely as a terrible person their mum probably loves them and sees wonderful things in them sure. if someone says that person's uh you know whatever the insult is about another person it's like well no they're not that they're a person they might be acting like that at one particular time or they might be saying something you don't agree but a person's a person which is a a big multifaceted mixture of all sorts of things good and bad so no in that way i don't feel like that about music i feel like if something that maybe this is why i like music because it's simpler in that way if it's great it's great the person who made it is probably a mixture <laughs> undoubtedly so what do you, I'm just going to say a name, right? Adele. 
at what moment in the conversation with Adele, the first meeting, second meeting, first demo, whatever, at what point did you go, oh, here's the spark? Um, so I'd heard some demos on MySpace and she had a very distinctive voice, but I wasn't sure what the style was going to be. And I went to see her perform and she came across as completely 100% herself and utterly convincing in what she was doing, you know, on stage alone doing an acoustic set. And it sort of struck me that it didn't really matter what the style was going to be like. She'd have some way of doing that. And actually the style was much more pop than I thought it was going to be because I'd seen her perform acoustically. I thought that's the kind of record I thought would almost be like a sort of Joni Mitchell-esque folky sort of thing. And she had completely different she had like well-developed notions of producers to work with who i was not familiar with and a really ambitious way of looking at it which would become much more the way everything was gonna go in music um but wasn't really a process that i was that familiar with so she yes she was just completely self-possessed confident knew her own mind knew what she was going to do and in that regard was like very much the sort of archetypal artist's artist. I have a high regard for Excel and your ability to be able to do indie and mainstream, and they don't appear to be separated. They seem to be exactly the same thing. You seem to get um, the best out of people or manage to break down barriers to be able to extract what those people really want to say or be able to get it out musically or verbally or whatever it is. How do you know whether or not you should invest your time in this person or this group or not? I don't sort of run the label in a hands-on way. I haven't for the last 10 years, but I produce records one at a time. The principles of what I do now have, you know, same in that I do everything on gut. I work off a of feeling uh, an emotion. And I don't work like that because I've decided that's the best way and there is no other way. You know, I just know enough about how I'm wired sure. to have recognized that that's the only way I can work. Creative decisions to me are instinctive decisions. You know, I can't interpret any type of statistical information. I found school very frustrating because I wasn't able to interpret a lot of the information and the idea that you're expected to be an all-rounder and to be good at all these subjects was impossible for me. And I think once I got into the world and found out that actually the world doesn't work like that at all, and so if anyone's going into anything entrepreneurial or creative you can really just be good at one thing. Although it's going to help if you can also put a team of people together who can do the other things. Right. But then when I think once you've worked that out and you're like, oh, well, I'm good at this one thing and here's another person and they couldn't dream of doing it like I do it, but they can do this other thing, which I couldn't dream of doing. It made me think that at school, rather than everyone having to do all these exams, the whole class should be doing one exam altogether someone does this bit and someone does this bit and someone does that bit and everyone does the bit yeah. that they're good at and then everyone will do great. <laughs> and my kids are very behind this idea. God, God forbid they ever put me in charge of any type of educational system. <laughs> but 
it is all about being in a team once you start doing anything in the real world. Yeah. The great breakthrough of my life was realizing that. You know, I mean, I think I became extra focused on the things I did love doing because I, you know, because I couldn't do a broad variety of things. Of course, now you might be medicalized and given medication to make you better at a broad variety of things, which might make being at school easier, but might make it harder to get the kind of slightly obsessive hyperfocus, which I've got on the things I'm good on. Is there a process or a way that you try to extract the best out of people? Or is your point that everyone is completely different, so you don't know what it is? You're always basically finding it through your gut and you can't actually describe it because you don't know what it is. Yeah, I think that's it. Like Everyone's totally different. Everyone's got different strengths. Okay. People need completely different approaches to how you work with them. And also, there's this idea that there's you, there's me, and there's our relationship. And it's like a triangle. You are a completely different person to me than you are to anybody else. Because I can only interact with you through our relationship. If your siblings each have different relationships with each of their parents, and so in effect, have all got different parents, they're all having different upbringings with different parents, hence siblings don't come out the same as each other. This is why like, the most useless question anyone ever asks is, what's that person like? What's that person like to work with? Because all anyone will ever tell you is right. about their relationship with that person, which will be different to your relationship with that person. Yeah, I'm making a mental note here. Well, it's like when someone's, if anyone ever says like, oh yeah, I think you'd get on with really well with that person. That's very rarely true. Or you wouldn't get on with that person. That's based on such subtle elements of connection. You know, everything's about connection, isn't it? So if you've got that chemistry with a person, then anything's possible. Does that mean you don't take recommendations from people? If someone was to say to you, Richie, you've got to listen to this. You're going to love it. It's amazing. Would you instantly think, no, I don't think I would. I mean, of course I'll listen, but I'm much more interested in someone saying, I love this, yeah, yeah. than someone saying to me, you're going to love this. Because I think that is really, really hard to predict. You know, if you're really talking about your deepest feelings, your heart and soul feelings about something, it's very personal. Yeah, People's tastes are broad, really. It can go from very, very highbrow to very, very mainstream. There is no reason you can't be listening to Drill in the morning and Debussy in the afternoon. That makes total sense. And I think that's why things like algorithms are not, not interesting to me. Because an algorithm telling you what you should be looking at, I mean, maybe an algorithm is more likely to get it right than another person is. I don't know. But I, would, I mean, I, I, suppose, no, I suppose these things are only suggestions anyway. I mean, they're, they're suggestions perhaps to you because you strike me as someone who's you know, quite clear in their mind as to how things should or shouldn't work. But I think for a lot of people, the algorithm is dictating an awful lot of their life, mm. sadly. Mm. Yeah, and maybe it's dictating more of mine than I realise because of course, <laughs> I don't want to know the insides and, and outs of things because I don't want anything to get in the way of my instinctive feelings about things. So I don't know, you know, I don't know that much about the tech world. I think I've probably stayed a bit naive about it because I'm not sure how it would help me to know that much about it. When I have spoken to people about things in the past and they've said, this is going to happen, often with, with unbelievable accuracy. 
I've always sort of thought, okay. All right. I remember having conversations with people who told me what was coming in like musical formats and getting it right. And I haven't asked anyone that in ages because I haven't been to California in ages. Is there like another medium coming after streaming for music consumption? I think at least what I'm seeing or hearing is that there is definitely a movement away from not necessarily Spotify, but the model of Spotify, which is, you know, it's about fractions of cents on on a play mm -hmm. towards, I think, supporting artists, whether that's through Tidal, whether it's through, you know, the, the sale of, of vinyl. But I feel like there's more of an understanding than ever that in order to keep the industry going and to be able to make sure that artists play and come and tour and do the things that we enjoy, the, the relationship with them, um, there's got to be another way for them to to earn money. If you ask me personally, not with a tech hat on or anything else, what I would like to see is I would definitely like to see, you know, more money going into the hands of the artists so we can see them live more often and that they can put out music and music videos and stuff like they used to. I come from the MTV generation. I love music videos. And the reason that, you know, we transfer was working with Excel years back is because the money to make good music videos wasn't there anymore. So, you know, record labels were talking to brands to pay for music videos or pay for uh, special projects and that sort of thing. And I'd love to see that going back into the hands of the artists again so that you don't have this strange relationship with brands or a sort of third party involved in the process, which always dilutes it. But I don't know what the technology will be that will move music on. I hope it's not that streaming. Hmm. I'm getting the feeling that we're only just now coming to terms with the idea that people don't have to pay to buy a record. Yeah. I almost think the the reality of that has got slightly lost in all these other discussions that are going on. And obviously the the shift to that happened quite imperceptibly and consumers liked it it's a pendulum right i mean you've got teenage kids my my kids are listening to music on tiktok discovering music on tiktok and there are some elements that i love about it so my daughter's 13 and she'll you know she'll be playing some ella fitzgerald unwittingly on you know on tiktok and then putting it against the video and i'll be like shit you know what's that and she goes, i don't know it's like track 13 mm. no idea really of what it is but i'm not sure that that matters that much at the moment i'd hope that every time she would dive a little bit deeper <laughs> but the fact that she's discovering quite a lot of different genres of music through that platform i think is pretty cool the thing that does bug me is that there's very little respect for it you know you can listen to 15 seconds of a song you don't need to worry about how much time or effort went into it but you know when people were buying records, I mean, that was a big old commitment. But I mean, we didn't realise it was because it just was what it was, right? But every change of format wasn't really a change because it didn't really make any difference that it went vinyl, cassette, CD, paid for download. It didn't even make a difference if you were stealing it because stealing it when that was illegal also took some real commitment and there was jeopardy <laughs> there. That's just as good as paying for it. If not, you know, to shoplift a record... Yeah, that's actually even more commitment <laughs> than paying for it. So that was fine. Is there a shoplifting chart? That would be quite interesting. <laughs> well, uh, funny, funnily enough, there was. We we were told 
that at one stage prodigy was the most shoplifted artist. Oh, really? I remember that in the 90s and feeling so proud <laughs> of that. That meant more to me than any gold disc. Yeah, I can imagine. It really did. I just thought that's great. And to them too, probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was a great thing. So there was this, you know, this immense commitment. Now, now you realise, oh, it seems so expensive as well, such a commitment. So I think, given that these things are always cyclical, we're now in the 50s. And we're in like the jukebox era. The songs are on the jukebox. You're just hearing them. Hit songs definitely mean something to people to dance to or to fall in love. No artwork, no albums, not really in the 50s. Interesting. Um, and then that all became an art form in the 60s when you had a new, a new drug. Maybe the 60s is just round the corner. Maybe. It's a nice way of looking at it. Well, music is cyclical. Yep. What I don't know is whether technology is cyclical. In this, in this conversation, if it's really about music, I'm not sure the technology is important. It's nice to hear your hopes, your hopes and dreams. <laughs> well, so also in, you know, in working with Worldwide FM, right? You know, there was an initial interest in Worldwide FM as this radio station became more popular and the sort of the rubbed off that you had of BBC Radio 6 went to Worldwide. But then the pandemic happened and there was definitely a big shift in listenership during the pandemic. And what, you know, what I love, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, you'll love Benji B. And, but I feel, I feel more people looking for those curators again. Absolutely. No, Absolutely. There's such a plethora of music, right? There's so much stuff. There's new stuff coming through all the time. And as you say, the algorithms are basically making a mix of the week or selection of the day or whatever it is. And it is what you said earlier on about you're looking for people to say, I love this. There are not many people, I think, that dare to say, Richard, I love this. They probably say, I think you'll like this. Because they'd be quite scared, I think, of you saying, oh, no, that's shit. But I think with a curator or a radio DJ or a host, they will tell you they love this and go out on a limb, right? God, I love this track. It's just... yeah. And that's quite endearing and you don't hear it very often. I think you make a really valid point there. You know, DJ power has it's always been a massive factor for me. That was really what I started off doing before anything else. I was a DJ. And, you know, I have so much love for that art and it was such a massive influence on me. And, you know, I... I was growing up with these guys, but I used to go to Talking Loud on Sundays at Dingwalls. I used to go and hear jazz at Talking Loud on Sunday afternoons. Yeah, yeah. There was another, it's at Dingwalls and Camden, there was another club there on Thursday nights called High on Hope, which was Norman Jay's club, where they used to play, I think it was sort of music that was like related to a sort of New York Paradise Garage, Tony Humphreys, Zanzibar related, like deep, soulful house music. Hearing music curated by those people completely, you know, shaped my taste. And, I, you know, I was introduced to so many things through these master curators. I don't know they were thinking, oh, other people might like this. Let's get, it's like these are the things they were super passionate about. And so when I got into DJing, I was so, so kind of hell-bent on only playing things I absolutely loved that I don't, I think that held me back a bit. Because I think as a DJ, you do have to like, you're meant to keep the dance floor full. And that was never my priority. I always used to think, well, if it's not, if I don't love it, I don't want to play it. 
So I think that's why for me, like sort of curating and producing in, in the context I've done it since probably suited me better than DJing, where I think you've got to be willing to entertain yeah. a little bit more. I mean, let's talk about you being interested in stuff, because I think I read that you recently went back and studied music theory. It's a while back, yeah. What, so when was it? Around 2008, 9, 10, 11. I mean, but this is well into the career or the life of XL, right? So you didn't have to do this. So what I love about people that really love music is their their commitment. And you've used this word a couple of times in this conversation. Mm. And it strikes me that you have a real commitment to, to music. I mean, if you've got that connection to music and that love for it, I think that tends to be a lifelong thing for people. So will you be doing this when you're 90? I don't think there's any other way of being for me. I mean, I think if you, if you have that connection to music, you get it. It's a gift, right? It's a tremendous gift and I don't mean a gift in the way that people say, oh, he's a gifted person. I mean, yeah. if you really love music, the pleasure you can get from it is immense and it's easy. It's like you can hear a three-minute song and it completely can change how you feel. It can cause physical changes in you. Different things are happening in your brain and if you've got that connection to it. So I get the impression that people sometimes get that connection when they're younger and then they kind of lose it a bit as life kind of gets in the way of it. So I think you've got to stay quite open to maintain that connection to music. Maybe, yeah. And also you can't get stuck on some stuff you were listening to when you were a teenager, which I think happens to a lot of people. So you've got to be open to it. But I think if you can maintain that connection, it's a wonderful thing to have in your life, isn't it? Because it's so it's so pleasurable and it's so easily accessible. Yeah. Because if your passion's ballet, that takes a fair amount of commitment to go and watch a ballet let alone dance in a ballet, which you're not going to be able to do above a certain age, you know. But music, it's really, it's just, you can always tap into that and enjoy it. So I think having that connection is a, is an incredible gift. Yeah. I just want to ask you one last question. Who is an artist or a band that you love right now? Well, the artist I would really love to hear a new record from is Frank Ocean. Okay. I just mentioned him because I was listening to him on the weekend and these records he's put out are so spectacular. He is such a timeless talent. It was magic. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And that's our episode for today and the last of this season of Influence. Thank you to Richard Russell. He makes for a really thoughtful conversation. If you do not already have a WeTransfer Pro account, shame on you. We'd like to give you one, well, at least a few of you. So check out we.tl slash Richard. That's we.tl slash Richard for a free WeTransfer Pro account. Our gift to you as listeners. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer slash podcast midwife is Rachel Swaby with editing from Audrey No, Elise Hugh and sound engineering by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer creative producer is the lovely Kiara O'Shea. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying the show, please follow us, rate us, and leave us a review. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume.